indeed our prayer, dear God, that you would speak to us, that your spirit would speak truth through your word to us, a truth that comes to us not just in our minds, but to our hearts to inspire action, that it would enable us, that it would empower us, that it would motivate us to obey these wonderful words of truth. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak to those of us who are believers, that you would continue to sanctify us and change us according to your will, to your word. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would move in the hearts of those who do not yet believe. Lord, show them today that they need your saving grace and your saving power. Grant them now a desire to confess their sin, repent it, and by faith trust in Christ. Grant them salvation even in these moments. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm so blessed to be with you today. You must know this is the highlight of my week, not just because I get to preach, but because I get to be with you all singing and gathered around the Word of God and studying the Word of God and fellowshipping and praying. Such a blessing. In Matthew 24 and 25, we have been studying what is called the Olivet Discourse. There up on the Mount of Olives, Jesus gave his sort of final sermon to his apostles. This was just a day or so before his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion. And his discussion up there was all about the future. I made the case that the first half of chapter 24, verses 1 to 28, though it may be emblematic of the church age, this was really about those first few decades of church history or the apostolic age. The following part, verses 29 to 44, Jesus dealt with his return. He was simply answering the question that the apostles asked, what's going to happen in terms of the destruction of Jerusalem and what about your return? And Jesus deals with these questions or answers these questions each in order there. In terms of their spiritual walk, even in terms of our own spiritual walk and application, what ties these two things together is not that now we have some detailed bulletin, some program for the future. Rather, it is so that we would be spiritually ready. It is all about spiritual preparedness. Jesus says several times, you don't know when, so be ready. Be on the alert. Be watchful. In chapter 25, he says, be wise, watch out, and be found faithful when Christ returns. If those commands, direct commands in the sermon up there on the Mount of Olives weren't enough, Jesus spent more than half of this sermon applying this idea of spiritual readiness with four parables. Here before us we have, beginning at the end of 24 all the way through 25, four parables on spiritual readiness. That's what this sermon at the Mount of Olives is all about. This Olivet Discourse is about spiritual readiness, and we have these four parables. Beginning, like I said, back up in 24, what we studied last week, the parable of the wise and foolish servant, these householders, which is, like I said, what we studied last time. What we're going to look at today, another parable, the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the wise stewards and the foolish steward. And then finally, at the end of 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. And as I said, Jesus' objective all the way was to make them 
ready, ready for what was coming for them immediately, death, persecution, but also ready for his return because his return would be imminent. Of course, this application is the same for us. It's all about spiritual readiness. What's coming for you? What's going to happen in your life? Well, unless the Lord returns, what's in front of you is probably some sort of illness, probably some other issues in your family life, in your personal life, and eventually, I guess, again, given that Jesus would tarry, eventually you'll die. And this is all about spiritual readiness for that. If the Lord doesn't tarry, this is about becoming ready for His return, which is indeed imminent. I think it was 20 or 30 years ago, in the 90s, I know as I was a college student, Crystal Lewis had a song, People Get Ready, Jesus is Coming, Soon we'll be going home. People get ready. Jesus is coming to take from the world His own. You get the idea. First of all, He's not going to take anybody who's not, its, who's not His own. And secondly, if you are one of His own, you want to be found faithful when He returns. We want to be met with, well done, good and faithful servant, don't we? So what do we do? What do we do to ready ourselves spiritually? And that's the question that Jesus is answering in these four parables. What does it mean to be spiritually ready. So we are in parable number two, the first 13 verses of Matthew 25. Let's read this together and then we'll jump in. Matthew 25 beginning in verse 1. And the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. And the bridegroom was delayed. They all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgin came also, saying, Lord, open to us, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of God. Like many of you, I have a recurring dream. This dream comes to me in two formats. The first way this dream comes to me is it transports me back to my college or perhaps seminary days. I don't know which it is, but I'm a student, and it's, there's a lot of excitement on the campus. There's a lot of people around. My friends and family are there, and I quickly realize this is, this is graduation week, and I'm about to graduate. There's all this excitement, there's all these smiling faces, everyone's pumped. You're, you're taking sort of the last finals, I'm, I'm preparing, handing in my last papers. And then suddenly, with great dread, it dawns on me that I had enrolled in a class that I had completely forgotten about. And I rush around trying to gather the material and get the textbook and, and read up, but I know in the back of my mind I, I won't make it, I'm going to flunk this final, I'm going to flunk the class, and I will not graduate to the dismay of my, whole, my parents, my family, my, 
my spouse, it's going to be a disaster. The other format of the dream, a similar theme, the other format this dream comes to me, is uh, uh, fa my family and I on vacation. And my family and I go on vacation, we try to find uh, church to attend. If we're able to get there, we, sometimes we don't vacation with a vehicle, we're that stingy with our money, but sometimes if we have a vehicle, we'll try to find a church to attend, and, and we try to find a, a church to, you know, maybe a pastor that we, that's famous or, or, or good, someone maybe like Greg Waybright. We would go to this large church, and we attend that large church, and, and this is how this dream is set up. My family's with me. We're we're going to this large church. There's thousands of people. Again, there's excitement. There's joy. The, the people are, are smiling and happy. And at any moment, the service is going to start. And, and to my dread and to my great panic, someone walks up with a microphone and says, Now, Pastor, you're going to preach after such and such a song. My blood runs cold. And I start rushing around in my mind. I don't have anything to preach. I don't even have any notes with me. What am I going to do? I'm completely unprepared. This is going to be a disaster. Well, I can't help but think of those recurring dreams. Usually those dreams come to me when my sermon is not ready for Sunday. I try to have my sermon ready by Thursday. And uh, if I finish Friday and my sermon's not ready, usually on Friday night, Saturday morning, I'll have one of those dreams. I can't help but think of that recurring dream and the dread and the panic I feel when I read this parable, only their dread and their panic is far worse. The panic these young ladies had and missing a marriage feast represents the panic that people have when Christ returns or perhaps the panic someone will have on their deathbed. Understanding with great dread, with great sadness, that it's too late. It seems that Jesus indicates here this horrifying, dreadful, panic-filled moment will happen to many, many people. In the context of his story, this is panic that is magnified by the fact that a lot of people presumed all along that they were going to make it in, only to find out at the end it's too late and they're not going to make it to heaven. Can you imagine that day? One moment things are going well. You think you've got all your ducks in a row and you're going to go to heaven, you have your ticket, your eternity is secure, you presume that you'll make it to heaven, only to discover right at the end, to your great horror, you ignored truth. You will not be known by the Lord in the end. You will not be welcomed into heaven, into that great feast with open arms. On top of that, you know your guilt. You're instantly aware of the fact that you were told repeatedly that the things in which you trust will not save you. You were told from pulpits, from friends, you were told even in your reading of Scripture that you ought to ready yourself and you ignored it. You didn't ready yourself. You trusted in other things. And so now to your utter terror, you face eternal punishment in hell apart from God. Now the moral will of God is that none would perish like this, but all would by faith repent and come to eternal life. Second Peter 3 Nine. In fact, there in 2 Peter 3, we discover that the reason that there are so many years, hundreds, thousands of years until His return is because God is mercifully giving people time to get right, to be prepared, to ready themselves for His return. Based on His Word and His instructions, they should be ready. Well, it's because of that mercy 
that Jesus gave His disciples and us these four parables that we would be ready for His return. And I suppose if He tarries, be ready for death. Well, like I said, that first parable we looked at last week, the parable of the wise and foolish servants, the application is to be true to what God has called you, first as a human being, but ultimately as a Christian, to be true to what God has called you to be. A Christian, a child of God, the bride of Christ, a servant of the Master. And so the first way we learn to ready ourselves for His return is, number one, if you're writing these things down, number one is to pursue integrity. Integrity is not about being true to what you want or what you feel like your inner self is all about, your own carnal desires. It means being true to what God has called you to be. Again, first of all, it means being what God has called humans and why God created humans, and that is to worship Him. In order to worship Him properly, it means you respond to the truth of His Son who came to this world, was crucified, and so you freely, willingly became a bond slave of God, someone who, because God's grace was so great, you bonded yourself to the Master and you chose Him to serve Him, chose to serve him forever. Well, and that's what we want to be true to. We want to be that servant who lived up to the calling of servant, who lived up to the calling of bond slave, who did the master's will, and when the master returned, he found that servant doing what he was called to do. The parable of the ten virgins teaches us that in that last day, do not be outed as a wedding crasher, someone who's inauthentic, someone who's fake, a fake Christian, someone who foolishly, ignorantly, willfully presumed without giving much thought to what it means to be a genuine believer. And so what Jesus taught in this parable in terms of readiness is what Paul would say later in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourself, prove whether or not you are in the faith. Make sure you are authentic. And so this parable teaches us, number two, to ensure authenticity. In that last day, you want to be found as an authentic Christian, not an unprepared fake. And so to illustrate this, Jesus gave us this parable, this parable of a wedding, a wedding party. I want to take some time just to describe what Jesus is talking about there. Uh, this is a little bit foreign to us, the way they would do those first century Jewish weddings. So I want to take a little bit of time to explain to you the, the picture that he's giving, something that the disciples would have understood, but maybe we don't really understand. And then I want to make a few applications, I think, fall neatly from the words of Christ in this parable. In those days in Jewish culture, marriages had three phases. Uh, the first phase would be the arrangement. You might want to call it engagement, but... It's not engagement like you and I think of engagement. Engagement now is two people falling head over heels with one another. Back then, engagement or arrangement would be made by the fathers. Right? The fathers would make an agreement. I want your son to marry my daughter. I want your daughter to marry my son. These things would be arranged. You guys have seen Fiddler on the Roof. You maybe even come from a culture where there are more uh, arranged marriages than there are in Western culture. And that's the first phase. Basically, the parents agreeing with one another to have their children marry one another. 
sometimes it was legal. Sometimes there would be an actual uh, uh, covenant or a, a promise, some sort of contract made between the parents, fathers really, to give their children to one another in marriage. That's the first phase. The second part of a Jewish marriage would be betrothal. In betrothal, the engaged or arranged boy and girl would have an official legal ceremony. There would be a, a ceremony, and this time it wouldn't be a celebration. It wouldn't be like a marriage like you and I think of a marriage, but it would be a legal ceremony. They would draw up some legal covenants, some commitments, binding promises that they would make to one another. These covenants were so serious that even though for the next months or, or year, even though they didn't live together or operate as a married couple and they had not consummated the marriage, these covenants were so uh, uh, important that in order to break the covenants, it would take divorce. We saw this early in our study of Matthew, of course, with Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph were not living together. They, were not, they had not consummated the marriage. Mary was a virgin, and she was found of child. When Joseph found this out, what did he want to do? He wanted to divorce her quietly. And this is the kind of covenant, this is the kind of commitment that they had during that betrothal period. During that period of betrothal, the young man would have some time possibly even as long as a year, to establish his life, to have, establish his career, perhaps even to build a house, to secure a place for them to live, to start his business, to start his career, to make sure that he was making ends meet that would supply their needs. And he would live that year preparing his place for his bride. The final phase of marriage was called in the Greek gamos or gamos, that's the word that's used here. All the parental involvement was done. The legal things were done. Now it was time for unification. The union was to happen. The union was accomplished with a massive celebration. The whole city would be involved. The whole village would be involved. These celebrations would last sometimes an entire week. Everyone would be involved somehow, especially in smaller villages. You think about if you grew up in a small town, it's like everybody is not only knows one another, but they're somehow related to one another. There were many small villages across Israel in that day, and perhaps the whole village would be involved in this celebration. The climax of the celebration was when the groom would come and collect his bride. He would take his brothers and his friends. He would wait until usually late at night. They would take torches, and by the way, that's the word here. The word here in the ESV, it says lamps, but uh, the Greek word is torches. Uh, you find the word lamp when it talks about don't put your lamp under a bushel. That's a different word, a different Greek word, but they had these torches. These torches would be a, a stick, of course, with some metal netting on the end, maybe some cloth and stuff inside that netting. They would either pour oil on it or dip it in a waxy oil, and they would light it, and it would stay lit for some time. They would take those torches. They would parade it through the city. They would sing songs. They would announce the groom is ready to take his bride and they would go to where the bride and her wedding party, her friends and her sisters would be. They would be all virgins. None of them would be married. The bridesmaids, so to speak, would be all very young girls, teenagers. And they would go and pick up this wedding party and they would make their way to the house that he had prepared for them and they would have a great celebration. That celebration would last through the night Friends and family, all were there. The official wedding party would celebrate. As morning drew near, the wedding party would depart and leave 
a husband and wife there to consummate the marriage, to finalize a very fun but exhausting week of celebration. All right, we have the picture of what Jesus is talking about here. What's the twist in the story? And that's a good question to always ask when you read a parable, right? What's, what's the interesting bit of information? What's the twist in the plot that makes this interesting? And the twist here in the context of the Olivet Discourse is all about spiritual readiness. Look again here at our text. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. Again, these virgins will be young ladies. They were like the bride. They had not been married And by the way, I don't think we need to push the analogy too far. This doesn't represent something else. Jesus doesn't give us any indication this represents. This is just what they did back then. These ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. And here's the twist. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. I think this gives us the first piece of application A. Be wise, not foolish. I mentioned this last time, a common strain in all of these parables that Jesus tells about spiritual readiness is that he divides the human race into two groups. The parable of servants is the faithful servant versus the wicked servant. The parable of the talents, it's the good servants, two of them, in contrast to the wicked, slothful servant. In the final parable, it's division between the sheep and the goats. Here, of course, it is a contrast, he said, between the wise virgins and the foolish virgins. Right from the top, Jesus is telling His men, I want you to follow the wise way. Don't follow the foolish way, follow the wise way. We're reminded of the parable of the builders, right? What did the wise builder do? He built his house upon the rock. The rock of truth, the rock of Jesus' words, the rock of the, the, the articulation of the gospel. By broad extension, we'd say it would be the Word of God. He built his life on the Word of God, the truth of God's Word articulated. The foolish builder, he built his house on the sand, meaning he built his house on the ever-shifting, unstable, untrue sands of world philosophy, of man's wisdom, not God's wisdom. I'm reminded daily about the deceptive unstable philosophies of man, and I see them almost on a daily basis, how people employ these in their lives, and it destroys them. When the wind comes and when the storm howls and the rains come down, their, their lives go kaput because they are unstable. They've built their lives on something that is false, something that is untrue. It is the shifting sands of the philosophies of man. Wise people, though, I think I'm reminded of this every day too. I see wise people, godly people who have built their lives on a rock, and it seems that no matter what comes their way, they are firm. The storm comes, you could say hardship, you could say persecution, you could say sickness, you could say death. You could even say in the context of our parables here, the return of Christ, the wise man will be ready. That judge, Jesus Christ, will appear, the king, and they'll be ready. When that happens, when Christ returns or when someone comes to death, it will be obvious those who are wise and those who are foolish, those who have built their lives on the rock and those who have built their lives on shifting sands. Now that's these five foolish virgins here. They have been immature, they've been unwise, they've been foolish. And so Jesus gives us this little arc plot of the story. There are these bridesmaids. 
And the lesson I'm going to teach you is to be like the wise virgins, not the foolish virgins. Be wise, not foolish. That's application number one. Application two, be prepared, not unprepared. Look in verse 3. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. You see what's happening. The wise virgins, the wise bridesmaids were able to look ahead, to ready themselves. I know what's going to happen. We've lit our lamps kind of early in the evening, and it's going to run out of oil. So I have a flask of oil with me to add fuel to this fire. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking that there may have been a discussion in this story between a a wise virgin and a foolish virgin, and the foolish virgin says to the wise virgin, well, what's that pouch that you've got there? Oh, that's oil for the torch. I want to be ready when the groom comes, and I never, you never know when he's going to come. It could be a surprise. It could be tonight or tomorrow night. You can never be too ready. The foolish virgin says, oh, yeah, I probably should have done that. My parents tried to remind me to bring a, a pouch of oil, and my mom actually gave me an empty pouch. I should have filled it with oil and, and brought it with me, but... I forgot about this. I guess I'll just deal with it when we get there. Being prepared means looking ahead. It means believing and knowing what is coming, what is certain, what is true. Even if you don't know the details. That's really the definition of maturity, right? Maturity is being able to look ahead and see what's, what's real, what's important, what's right, what's wrong. Being a wise person. Being prepared. The foolish here were unprepared. I'll give you another personal illustration at the risk of sounding a little narcissistic this morning. don't like, really like to do a lot of personal illustrations, but let me give you one. This is sort of self-deprecating anyway. When I was in uh, college, I purchased a Nissan, 1987 Nissan hardbody pickup. And um, some of you guys know what this 1987 pickup would look like, kind of squared off. They did changed, kind of squared off. and. Uh, I paid a lot of money for it. In, in those days, $2,800 was a lot of money, and I paid a lot of money for this car, and I um, uh, bought this car. It was a stripped-down version, vinyl seats, didn't even have the option of a, of a passenger-side rear-view mirror. It was sort of this gray, silvery color. Those of you who've been around here a long time and saw Danny Chang's old truck, that was it. That's exactly what it was. In fact, Danny, uh, he went the extra mile. He paid for another rearview mirror and, and attached a side mirror on it. He told me this some years ago. Well, my parents lived on uh, kind of the top of a little hill, and they had a circle driveway. And when I would come home to do my laundry or whatever, come home for the weekend from college, I would drive, and I would park that, that little four-speed stick shift in that circle drive, and I would put in a first and leave it there. My dad always said to me, now John, I've seen this happen a million times, you need to set the brake. Put the parking brake, because that thing can pop out of gear, and if it does, that, that truck's gonna roll down the hill. Oh yeah, 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 I will, I will, wait. that's right. So many times, I mean a dozen times, I, he forced me to go out there and set the brake. And of course, a lot of times when he wasn't around, I didn't set the brake. Well, one day, I come out the front after being there for a little while, doing my laundry or whatever, come out the front, and my car was stolen. Stolen by a gust of wind that popped it out of first gear. 
And I looked down the hill, and there it was, smashed right into a tree. I mean, just right in the center of the hood. Was I prepared? No, I wasn't. I was not prepared. Did I listen to all this wisdom? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got it settled. That's okay. Don't worry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. Immature. Foolish. Unprepared. Some of you, if you're honest, that's you and the gospel. That's you in terms of your spiritual walk, your Christian walk. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll get around to that. I'll do that. Yeah, I'm not, I know I'm supposed to do that. I know that's part of it. I should do this. I should get around to this. I, I've got this sin that sort of lingers. I, I, I should deal with this. To use the allegory here, you have no pouch of oil. You did not look ahead. You did not prepare your heart. You're not living a life focused on Christ. You're not living a life focused on Jesus, the church, no passion for truth, definitely not building into your life maturity and readiness. And you may discover at the return of Christ or perhaps at your death that maybe you were not authentic all along. Maybe you were like these foolish virgins that their unpreparedness was a symptom of the worst thing, and that is they were not authentic to begin with. And you may discover the same thing at your death or at Christ's return. So be prepared. Deal with God. Incorporate into your life those things, those things of maturity, those things that would help you grow. Pursue those things. Be prepared, not unprepared. Be wise, not foolish. Number three, be alert, not oblivious. Be alert, not oblivious. Verse 5 as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Just to give you a little clue, sometimes it was known when the, bride's, the, the bridegroom would come, when the groom would come and collect his bride. Sometimes, though, it was a surprise. They wouldn't even know the day. And they would be celebrating, and they wouldn't even know what, what, what point in the night would he come. Would he come tonight or tomorrow night? Or we, what time would he come? They didn't know. It was sort of a surprise. And he says there's a delay. So they, they slept, it says, midnight. There was a cry, here's the bridegroom, as they're sleeping, they come out of their slumber, and there's this announcement, come out to meet him. Now, maybe I'm pushing this a little too far, but I think the wise and foolish, their sleep can be thought of as categorically different sleep. The wise virgins slept well, they were ready. I think we can at least say, in terms of Jesus' analogy here, that being ready is not a matter of of ceasing your life in order to focus on end times. That's not what it means to be alert. There's no condemnation for these wise virgins who slept. They went about their lives, but they were still ready. All that to say, I don't think in order to be ready, you have to obsess over end times verses and obsess over trying to map out everything that Jesus is going to do and when the return is coming. I think it means to be ready spiritually in terms of your maturity, in terms of your wisdom, in terms of truth, in terms of following the disciplines and pursuing the fruit of the Spirit. These were faithful versions, and yet they were asleep, and, and I believe their sleep was sound, and their sleep was with a clear conscience. We look later on in the Bible, and we see many people working and doing their jobs, raising their family, raising their crops, serving the government or whatever, they didn't stay awake all night, standing on the roof, looking for the return of Christ. No, they lived their lives, but they were spiritually ready. The foolish versions, not so. Their sleep was categorically different. 
They were not alert. They should have denied themselves sleep in order to go get oil. As soon as they became drowsy, they must have thought, they should have thought to their mind, in their minds, you know what, I don't have oil. I need to go out and get some right now because the bridegroom may show up. But they didn't. So sleep for them represents something totally different. For them, it re represents selfishness. It represents them giving over to their bodily desires. Hedonism we talked about last time. Their sleep ultimately was a sinful lack of alertness. They live life oblivious to the groom's arrival. Look how oblivious and mindless they appear. Verse 6, the midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Again, that word trimmed there, uh, I think, again, the translators put it in terms of lamp. But that word trimmed actually just means prepare, like you would prepare a torch. So maybe put more cloth in, maybe add the oil. I guess it doesn't matter if it's lamps or torches that much, but I just want you to have a good right picture in your mind. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. These virgins, they look so foolish, they look so oblivious, so unready, scrambling around, begging for oil. Now they have to make a trip to the center of town at midnight hoping for something that won't be, and that is an oil vendor there in the middle of the night selling oil. And Jesus doesn't mention here if they were successful in finding oil or not, because at that point it doesn't matter. The groom had come and gone. He had gone back to the house, and only those who were ready were invited to be a part of the celebration. They went to the home. The door was shut. And no one else was allowed in. They were oblivious, not alert. Look at the last few verses of the parable, beginning in verse 10. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Boy, that has a thundering spiritual meaning, doesn't it? Ba-boom. That will happen to some people. Many people. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you, do, you know neither the day nor the hour. The fourth application is this. Be known, not presumptuous. Now, the language here should sound a little bit familiar. You remember what Jesus said at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, a sermon three years earlier said that many will come to him on that day, the day of his return, and say, Lord, Lord, same language there, did we not do all these things in your name? And God will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never, what, knew you. That word, know, in Matthew 7, same meaning as it does here, it's not general, generic awareness of. God knows everything. God knows everything about the sinner, uh, so much about the sinner that the sinner is not even aware of. God has infinite, detailed knowledge of everything. This is not talking about God's generic knowledge. It's also not talking about God's ge general love for the world. God loves all humans, Jesus said, for God so loved the world, and I don't think that means the world of the elect. 
I think it's talking about a, a love, a generic, broad love that God has for the entire world. God loves the world. He lives, loves even His enemies, and we see this demonstrated even in Christ's ministry. However, He does have a unique, special love for His children, His elect. You think about it in your own life, right? You perhaps love all children, but there's a very special, unique love that you have for your children. You may know a lot of children, but you have a special knowledge, a special, purposeful, loving knowledge for your children. What these foolish virgins had was not faith, it wasn't hope, it wasn't readiness or alertness or preparedness or obedience, none of that. All they had in their hands at the end was presumption. I'll get swept up. It's all so exciting and there are all the people around and, you know, there's all this good stuff and smiling faces and surely I'll just get swept up in the excitement. So many people presume that that's the way the kingdom of heaven works. So many people presume that that's the way they'll get to heaven. Notice here, folks, it says five virgins are foolish. I don't think Jesus is being mathematical and saying exactly half of the human race is ready and half aren't. I think there's just the point is there are many people. In fact, Jesus says that many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord. Jesus said, most people are on the broad way that leads to discussion. Few people are on the narrow path. And I think it's scary think about this picture here. These ten bridesmaids were, in a lot of ways, indistinguishable. They looked apart. They seemed to be a part of the, the wedding party. But in the end, there were some there who were simply presumptuous, that they would get swept in, unprepared, foolish, not ready or alert. Think about how many people attend church even on a weekend like this and they're just presuming. They have no great love for God. Perhaps they don't even have a true understanding of the gospel. Perhaps they've never genuinely repented. They just wanted to find purpose or find some sort of uh, pick-me-up in the middle of the week or at the end of the week. They wanted to find some kind of joy and they found a community of people. They all seem so happy and they just presume that in the end they'll, they'll get swept up in all the excitement. Well, they're in for a rude awakening. The truth is, some of you are sitting among us. You're not alert. You're not ready. You've never really responded in faith and repentance and brokenness to the gospel. And the truth is, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. If there's any inspection of your life, you'd be found unwise, not prepared, oblivious. In contrast to that, we are to pursue the wise path. Be like these wise virgins, virgins, prepared, alert, and truly known by God. People get ready. Jesus is coming to take to himself his own. Let's pray that we'll be a part of that. Lord, we thank you so much. For all that you've given us, we pray that we are ready. You have given us your truth. God, you could have sent Christ in the moments leading up to this sermon or perhaps in the middle of the sermon, but you have given us this grace. You have tarried so that some here might hear the truth of the gospel and ready their hearts. I pray, Lord, that those of us who consider ourselves believers would continue to pursue that faith and repentance that you 
granted us upon salvation. Help us to live that out, not just looking back at that some moment, not looking to the accoutrements of the American Christian life, but to really look at our hearts and examine ourselves and prove whether or not we're in the faith. Lord, I pray that this message that Jesus is giving over and over through these parables will call us, call some even in this room to salvation. I pray that it will call all of us to readiness and wisdom and alertness. Help us to live as prepared people, doing your will, pursuing integrity when your son returns or when you call us home in death. Lord, by your grace, we pray that your word would be used today by your spirit to prepare us when we meet you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you'll stand with me for a benediction. This benediction is inspired by 2 Corinthians 13.5. Now may we go examining our hearts and proving with our faith and faithfulness that on that day we will be welcomed to the wedding feast as good and faithful servants. Amen.